Holy God, you are righteous and just in every way. And yet you are merciful and gracious beyond our understanding. What joy is ours to call you Father. We have been adopted as your children through Jesus Christ. We reflect upon our sin that is continually before us. It reminds us that we enter this world with wicked hearts. We do not remember in order to wallow in our rebelliousness, but Lord, that we might fully appreciate your grace. We remember that our gratitude and joy may be made full. We remember that our worship may be genuine and vibrant. We remember that our hearts may be encouraged to pursue you, that we might continually be repulsed by sin, that we might pursue holiness by your Spirit's power. What a remarkable occasion is ours today. Truly, it is only by your plans, it is only by your provisions, your power, and your faithfulness that we are gathered here today. Two distinct congregations uniting as one for your glory. We pray that your faithful hand will guide this church all its days. May you, Lord, through your spirit, make us one with you and with one another. Guard our hearts against the enemy's deceptions. Give us humble hearts. Fill us with love for you and one another. Lord, fill us with conviction and passion to love this community. Make us effective and fruitful stewards of the gospel. Make us a people who are committed to your word, devoted to your word, always obeying your word. Lord, fortify our hearts against distractions and temptations. Bless this church. Make us a radiant city on a hill. Make your glory shine forth in resplendent fashion through this body. May we be a life-giving outpost of your kingdom for all the world to encounter. Speak to us, change us, display us, Lord, through your glory. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Psalm 90 was written by Moses. While Moses has penned a couple of songs, one in Exodus 15 and one in Deuteronomy 32, this is the only psalm that is credited to him. The setting for the psalm was Kadesh Barnea. This was the place that was about, oh, I don't know, 100 miles or a little less southwest of the Dead Sea. It was in the wilderness of Zen. Kadesh Barnea was a favorite camping spot for the Israelites during the wilderness journey. There were a couple of significant things occurred here at Kadesh Barnea that are worth our consideration. One, this is the place where Moses dispatched the 12 
uh, the 12 spies to go into the promised land and to bring back a report. And when the report came back, the 10 spies, you will remember, said that the land was filled with giants and it was a doubtful, it was an ominous kind of report, negative in its intention, persuading the people to resist God's direction to go in and take the land. Only Joshua and Caleb gave a favorable report, you remember. And then also, this is the place where the people grumbled against Moses about water, and Moses was told by God to speak to the rock and provide water, and Moses didn't speak to the rock, but struck the rock. And he and Aaron and Miriam were guilty of grumbling and murmuring as well as the people. So it's a place where God's sovereign blessing and control and power has fallen into question and accusation by the people. We think that this psalm, that that's what's on Moses' mind as he talks about God sweeping the people away as a flood like a dream. It represented his anguish as Moses watched thousands upon thousands of people die and perish over their time of sitting in the wilderness waiting for this 40-year curse that God has placed upon them to pass. For the old generation to pass away and the new generation to grow up. One estimate I read said that if we're talking about uh, maybe more than one million people perishing in this time, that there would have been something like thirty-five or 40,000 people dying every year. That this was on Moses' mind, front and center in his vision, as he writes this hymn. I believe it's an appropriate place for us today to consider Maybe to swim in this text a little bit as we began a new journey together by God's ordination, by God's direction, and through His power. There are three things taking place in the passage that I think are worth our consideration. First of all, as we sang earlier, Moses pens these words, and he could have written the song that we sang earlier. He says that, he wants his audience to behold our everlasting God. Behold our everlasting God. He's focusing on a high view of God right out of the gate. He says he is Lord, Adonai. This means master. Such terms are frowned upon in our society today. No one would, no one would go around talking that way lest you be called some name that you won't like. Humanity is all about personal autonomy. Humanity considers self to be master, self to be Lord, not someone else, not someone on the outside looking into our lives. But Moses, called the man of God, refers to him as Lord, as master, Moses was raised, reared to be a true son of Pharaoh. He was called and used by God for a truly unique mission. For most of us, those who have been grounds for 
a sense of pride, a sense of superiority over others. And yet the scripture tells us that he was a meek man, a humble man. Numbers 12 verse 3 says, now the man Moses was very humble more than all men who were on the face of the earth. That verse seems a little bit odd given that Moses is credited with penning the Pentateuch. Why would he say that about himself? Well, we have to think about the context. God's the one who penned the words. I imagine Moses must have penned them reluctantly given what God said about him. But it was in this place, this context where Aaron and Miriam both challenged Moses. They took issue with him. Why is he entrusted with this authority? Why is he the only one who can speak for God? Moses would not even dare to rebuke them. He he didn't take any issue with them. But he stayed focused on the course at hand. He kept his peace. So it was God who spoke to Aaron and to Miriam. And said, how dare you? Moses and I have a close relationship. I've called him out. I I am using him. I have vested the authority upon him. You should have thought about that. Considered that. Before you started criticizing him. But because Moses was such a meek and humble person, he refused to take it upon himself to squelch the rebellious attitude. He refused to exalt himself and set his siblings straight. So God stepped in and did it for him. There's an important lesson here for us. The world thrives on arrogance. This world pursues Satan's pattern in this matter. But God's people should always pursue a pattern of humility and submissiveness. Ephesians 5, verse 20 and 21 says, Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The pattern for the church, the pattern for God's people, submitting to one another in humility, out of reverence for Christ, out of honor for Him. Moses begins by acknowledging the Lord. God is his master, giving us a pattern before us as well. He is also referred to as his refuge. He says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. This is not a statement about the present only, but Moses is thinking about the past that he has known about God, how God has always been there for this people. In his estimation, it didn't matter where they were, what the circumstances were. God was the dwelling place. God was their refuge. Generations come, generations go. But God continues to be the refuge for his people. Moses had quite a significant history. God had personally shared with him and prepared him to write the Pentateuch. And a part of that was recounting the creation of all things. Since the beginning, Moses knew that God was always there. He knew how God had called out Abraham. He knew how God had covenanted with Abraham. How he had covenanted with Isaac and again with Jacob. 
He knew how God had used the suffering of Joseph to prepare again, to redeem, to save his own people, to preserve his people. He knew how God was steadfast through 400 years of bondage by an oppressive people in Egypt. He knew personally God's miraculous provision in liberating his people from that bondage. And he had overseen God leading them through the wilderness all these years. And that God had always met every need. Moses was convinced that no matter what the place or the circumstances, God was their refuge, their dwelling place, the place where they were sheltered from all else, whether they be living in tents and shepherding sheep, whether they be a welcomed guest in a foreign land, or whether they be slaves enduring hardship or trudging through a desert. You, O Lord, have been our refuge and our dwelling place. He is indeed the people's refuge. But he also says that he's eternal. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Yahweh is always there. Before everything was made, before anything was made, God existed. It was he who formed all these things. Does not matter what all the experts think or say or argue. It only matters what God has said. He will not be denied, nor will he be mocked. From everlasting to everlasting, he alone is God. No beginning and no end. He will never diminish nor deteriorate. That's all we see in our world today, isn't it? He needs no improvement, nor will ever have anything added to him. He is perfect and whole. Perfect, excellent, eternal, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God. He reveals us to himself through the person of Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is eternal, everlasting. We can't get our minds around it. We can't comprehend what this means. We're so finite, so limited in the way that we see things and have experienced everything. And yet Moses said he is an eternal, everlasting to everlasting God. We abide in him by faith, knowing that through his spirit in us, these things are true. But one day, the new creation will usher in his perfect presence. The scripture says in Revelation 21, 3, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. All the distractions, all the encumbrances, all the hindrances will be removed. They will be no more and he will always be present with his people. He is always and forever our dwelling place, our refuge. And that day we will know him perfectly and completely. It's an intimidating thought in many ways. I've offended the holiness of God every day of my life. I've doubted him every day of my life in some way or another. I have chosen idols and rejected him every day of my life. But in Christ, 
In Christ, I am confident of his forgiveness. In Christ, I am justified and I am righteous like he is righteous. And I will know his presence in a glorious and unhindered way. Oh God, we long to be sinless like Christ. May we rejoice to see the day when we will be with you. Today we dwell in your presence by the presence of your spirit within us. We follow him by faith, but soon, very soon, we will see him face to face. Isaac Watts said it so well. Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast and our eternal home. The psalmist exhorts us to behold our everlasting God. But then he reminds us, and this is not the fun section. He reminds us that we should lament our brokenness and brevity. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are all like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. And in the morning it flourishes and is renewed. And in the evening it fades and withers. We're reminded of our fallen and broken nature. We're hopeless apart from God's mercy and grace. While God is constant from everlasting to everlasting. He's high and lifted up, majestic and holy. Humanity is finite, frail, like a vapor here today and gone tomorrow. Humanity's fallen, broken, corrupt, even wicked and evil. There's a natural repulsion to this truth in all of us. No one wants to think or be identified as evil. We want to think that we're good, right? But Moses saw this repeatedly with Israel. God was faithful and powerful and gracious to them, and they continually reverted to criticism, to grumbling, to discontentment. And it was not just a few bad apples in the camp. It was each and every one. In fact, even Aaron and Miriam, Moses' own siblings, were guilty. Even Moses, the man God said was meek and humble beyond all, had his moments when he displayed selfishness and corruption and rebelliousness. Verse 3 here says, and points us to Genesis 3, 19, to God's curse upon Adam. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. From God's eternal perspective, time is fleeting. A thousand years like a day. How fleeting is it? Job said, my days are like a weaver's shuttle. Have you ever watched a shuttle? <laughs> it moves back and forth so rapidly you almost can't see it. Job said, my days pass in this manner. Moses describes man's brevity vividly here. Like grass that is renewed in the morning, and in the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. 
Humanity is like that foolish man of Jesus' parable in Luke 12 who decided to build bigger barns. And Jesus said, you fool. (laughs) Don't you know your life will be required soon? We hear the constant refrain of life's brevity. We see the evidence of it all around us. But so many are in denial. I was looking at some pictures this week from a high school class reunion. And I couldn't help but notice how old all those people had gotten. Some of them I couldn't even recognize. And it seems like just yesterday, just yesterday, we were walking the halls of that school building together. Time moves quickly. I've been pressing this conversation with people I encounter, with people I meet, wherever it may be. Many acknowledge that life's end is certain. It's sure to come. No one will deny that. Hardly anyone wants to talk about what happens after. I've been using Hebrews 9.27 a lot lately. I've quoted this to several people. It's appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. Conversation usually ends abruptly. I have that gift. But I grieve over this truth that everyone is certain to die. This is not what we were intended for. This is not what we were created for. And yet so many, so many are on a collision course with it without any hope. Everyone is sure to face the righteous judge. Everyone will be held accountable to the standard of his or her holiness. And believe me, there's only one standard of holiness. And all will fail the test and deserve eternal judgment. It's horrible news. It's heart-wrenching news. It's not negotiable, nor is it debatable. Our Creator has made the rules, but He has also made a way whereby we can meet that standard. He has graciously substituted Himself to pay sin's penalty, to make a way for us to enter God's presence, to be accepted And it's available to all who will believe the gospel and repent of sin. Who considers the power of your anger and your worth according to the fear of you? He says in verse 11. Consider the standard and its judgment. Consider his message of redemption through Jesus Christ. Believe the gospel and repent of sin. And for those who do, Moses moves us to the final Stanza, the final verse here, which is a beautiful prayer. I would sum this prayer up by saying it is to pursue and display God's glory. Pursue and display God's glory. I love this prayer. I know that most of us can quote the Lord's Prayer. We learn it at an early age. And it's a wonderful prayer in its own right. But this prayer is just next to my heart. Notice what he says. Teach us to number our days that we may be, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? 
Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Teach us to number our days. He's asking, he's praying, he's beseeching God not to help us just keep track of our ages, how long we live. We have a love-hate relationship with that, don't we? Kids grow up so fast, we can't keep up with it. To celebrate a birthday and before you know it, it's a decade. Adults spend a lot of resources and time and energy seeking ways to find the fountain of youth, to preserve youth. But none of it works. None of it works. That's not what he's saying. Teach us to number our days means to be good stewards of them, to be faithful stewards of what God has prepared for us and assigned to us. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time because the days are evil, Ephesians 5, 15 and 16, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Wisdom's not just knowledge. It's not an increase of knowledge. It is knowledge, but wisdom is knowing what to do with that knowledge, how to use that knowledge in a way that honors and glorifies God. Wisdom is the ability to employ knowledge well. Teach us to number our days that we will be wise with its usage. Show us your mercy. Return, have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfastness. The fruit will be joy and gladness, contentment all our days. Oh, how we who live in this present age need the gift of contentment that only God provides and gives us. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. Display your glory. Let your work be shown to your servants. Let your glorious power be evident to their future generations. May those who follow us look back and see the evidence of God's power and God's glory in this day. Let us not, let us not leave future generations with a legacy of regret and repentance over what has gone before. Let the favor of God be upon us. Make your beauty. This means make your beauty to be evident here on this people. Whose beauty? God's beauty, not ours. Not our ingenuity, not our programs, not our efforts, not our history, but his glory, his personal glory, his anointing. May it be upon him. May it be the story that goes forward. It's not our story to tell. It's his story that we tell. Only that which is done in us and through us will remain. Not what we do in his name. We should aspire to live for his glory, for his beauty in all things. Personally 
and corporately. Living for this world, for pleasure, for idols, only leads to vanity, emptiness, futility. But living under the lordship of God, we find true purpose. We try, find true fruitfulness, both individually and corporately. To live in such a way that Yahweh's value is clearly evident. His beauty is manifested for the world to see. Today is the beginning. Milton Community Church begins its mission. It's not starting out of a vacuum. It's building upon a history of two congregations. Coming together, one stream, two streams uniting in one stream to move forward for God's glory. I'm excited about God's faithful work through Crabapple and Grace in the past. But I'm ecstatic to think about what God will do through them together moving forward as Milton Community Church. Only in and through Christ does this have any meaning. Only in Christ can it have any meaning. Can it produce fruit that will remain. His work on the cross and resurrection is our foundation. His spirit dwelling in us is our power and our assurance moving forward. Momentarily, we're going to gather around his table as one body for the first time. And we're going to remember. We're going to remember how he ransomed us through his death and resurrection. We're going to remember how he promises his spirit to empower and seal us in this present time. We're going to remember that he's coming again to gather us to himself where we will always be in his presence. And we're going to verbalize our covenant together, our promise to Christ and our promise to each other to pursue this with passion, with commitment, with love. And as we begin this new journey, I want to ask you to indulge me five minutes to share with you two or three things that are on my heart this morning as we launch, as we begin. The first thing I want to challenge you with is I want you to remember God's faithfulness in the past. We will do ourselves a disservice if we fail to remember from where we've come. Grace has a 20-year history. That's significant. Lots of people have come and gone through grace. Lots of ministry has been participated in, has been accomplished, has been achieved to build the kingdom of God. That's something worth celebrating. It's worth remembering. Don't forget it. Only eternity, only eternity will be able to reveal the true impact of those years. Don't forget it, but don't worship it. You can't worship it. It's not your God. Crabapple, 130 years of ministry, 130 years of history. That's hard for us to fathom, isn't it? 1892. I wasn't yet born then. <laughs> Some of our teenagers think I was, but I wasn't. 
130 years. That's a long time. A lot of people have come and gone, have been used by God to further his kingdom's work here in this place because this church has persevered and served him, coveted his grace and mercy. Only eternity will reveal the true impact of all that's been accomplished during that time. Only eternity. Only God keeps those kind of books. Don't forget it. We'll never forget it. As you look at the bell out front with those names that began 130 years ago, we can't forget that. But don't worship it. Don't worship it. God's been at this a lot longer than 130 years. He's used a lot more people than just the people in this location. And we're all a part of that kingdom river that's moving from Eden to Eden. The impact continues through Milton Community Church. Remember, but don't worship things. Secondly, Steward God's mission faithfully. Steward God's mission faithfully. In Christ, we are a new creation. He is reconciled, it says, through his shed blood, broken body, he has reconciled us to a holy God. This is more precious than silver or gold, Peter says. The precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, spilled out so that you and I can enter the presence of God. We don't give it enough credit or thought very often. He's given to us this ministry of reconciliation, he tells us in Corinthians. He's given to us a ministry of reconciliation, of sharing this message with other people and seeing them come to God. That the, un, that the broken be unbroken, be healed. This is gospel work. It's our mission. And this is our work. We're not a social engineering entity. We're a gospel outpost. Sent from the kingdom of God to be in this broken world. To tell people there's a better way. A better opportunity. The kingdom of God must always be front and center. It's not the story of us. It's his story that we tell. Steward the gospel. Steward the resources that God entrusts to us. The people, first and foremost, and then the practical things. But never the practical at the expense of the people. Nor the gospel. Steward the opportunities. Not every opportunity is of God. Not every opportunity is the best opportunity. Church doesn't have to do everything. It just should be God-focused in what it does. Thirdly, pursue God's glory exclusively. Pursue God's glory exclusively. It's his work according to his blueprint, and it's by his power. He's given us direction, he's told us how, and he gives us the power, the energy to follow him. 
to honor him. Serving human preferences and programs is a recipe for failure. Serving in human abilities and strength will prove fruitless and frustrating. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, what? You can do nothing. Later in that same chapter, he said, you did not choose me, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. It doesn't belong to us. He is the owner. We're simply the servants that carry out his wishes. It is in this spirit, it's in this spirit that I invite you today to approach the Lord's table. If you have believed the gospel and repented of your sin, if you're currently walking in fellowship with Christ and his people, you can confidently approach this table where we're reminded of his sacrifice, his blood that was shed for us, his body given for us, where he died to purchase forgiveness for repentant sinners. He resurrected as the first fruits of new life for his elect. We are reminded that his spirit indwells us, one spirit uniting all in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful. Grateful for the ways that you work. The things that you do are simply marvelous, breathtaking. But you've done so much on our behalf and given us such privilege and opportunity to be a part of your kingdom work. Lord, what you've done to bring this body together is nothing short of miraculous, supernatural. We know you have great plans great desires, particular hopes for this congregation. Today, tomorrow, and all the years that stretch out before us until you come again and take us all home. We pray that, Lord, you might fill us with your spirit, that you might anoint us with your spirit, that you might empower us and guide us through the illuminating power of your spirit to do only that which you call us to do and to do it, Lord, in a humble, dependent upon you only manner in a way that only glorifies you. As we come to your table this morning to covenant together as one body, we pray that, Lord, you might search our hearts, that you might show us any sin that should be confessed and repented of, that we might come, Lord, with clean, clear consciences before you today and before one another, and that we might partake of this, these elements, Lord, that point us always to the atoning work of Christ, to our victory over persistent sin around us today, and encourage us to expect your return at any moment. We pray that you will bless these elements and use them, Lord, 
symbolically to challenge us. Lord, as we covenant together and move forward together for your glory and for your honor. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.